Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 346 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Lisa Yazik. She's a professor of science fiction studies at Georgia Tech, and her books include Galactic Suburbia, Recovering Women's Science Fiction, and Sisters of Tomorrow, The First Women in Science Fiction. She's also a past president of the Science Fiction Research Association and a juror for the John W. Campbell and Yuchi Foster Awards, and she recently appeared in the AMC series James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new anthology, The Future is Female, 25 Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women, From Pulp Pioneers to Ursula K. Le Guin. And now here's our interview with Lisa Yazik. All right, so we're here with Lisa Yazik. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here today. Okay, so to start with, just tell us about how you first got into science fiction. Well, I've actually always been interested in science fiction. My very first memory in the world is watching Star Trek reruns with my parents and eating vegetables out of our organic garden. So I figured I was going to have to grow up and either do something with science fiction or be a farmer. (laughs) And it looks like I went for science fiction instead of the farming. All right, well, I endorse that choice. Oh, thanks so much. But yeah, I mean, science fiction's always been so important to me. I mean, I read it with my friends growing up. When we went away to college, it was one of the ways we stayed in touch. We would send each other books. And, you know, even now, the amazing thing about science fiction is you can go anywhere in the world and talk to anyone in the world, and they've got an opinion about science fiction. It might not be your opinion, but they definitely have one. And I think that's so cool. It's a way that we can all communicate with each other about things that are important to us in this world. So when you were growing up and sharing books with your friends, what sorts of books were you sharing? Oh, gosh, I grew up around Detroit in the 1980s, so cyberpunk for sure, because it really felt like we were already kind of living in that future, this sort of decayed, falling apart, but sort of dark and glamorous kind of world. Mm-hmm. We, we just didn't have the really cool like body augmentations that you usually have in cyberpunk. So, But, you know, someday we'll have those. That's really cool that you had friends who were into it like that, because a lot of people I talked to, I asked them, did you have any friends who were into science fiction? And they say, no, I, I was all by myself just reading science fiction. Oh, no, that's such a sad thing. It's so wonderful to read it in a group with people and, and to have other people to talk about it with or to watch movies together. Yeah. So were you were you going to science fiction conventions or anything like that? You know, I wasn't, actually. I didn't go to a science fiction convention until I was in graduate school. Um, and that was WISCON, which is the largest and oldest feminist science fiction convention in the world. And I was at the University of Wisconsin and got involved with people who were running the academic track. And so I actually came into it primarily as a scholar uh, rather than a fan. Uh-huh. So at what point did you decide that this was something that you could do for a career? Uh, It took a little while to figure that out. So when I was in graduate school, I was actually studying serious literature, but I was still really interested in the relationship between science and technology and literature. And so that became a way to loop back and start working on science fiction again. But it never occurred to me you could actually do that full time as a profession. But then I got a postdoc at Georgia Tech in the School of Literature, Media and Communication, And when I was looking through the faculty I could work with, there was someone there who was actually a professor of science fiction studies and another person who worked on science, technology, and literature with an emphasis on science fiction. And I thought, wow, this is really amazing. I had no idea that you could could make a career of this. So I was so excited to get there and work with them. And the year I got there, one retired and the other person left. So I never got to work with them, but their jobs opened up the year after that. And I got one of those jobs. So that, that worked out pretty well, actually, in the long run. And that's pretty unusual, right, for there to be a a specific job called professor of science fiction or something? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely unusual. There are hundreds and probably thousands of us around the world who seriously study science fiction across media, but very few of us get to do it full time. Most of us have to pass as some other kind of professor, uh, maybe professor of uh, women's studies or professor of sociology or professor of contemporary literature. Mm. And so so that's cool. So you move into this job as a professor of science fiction. And then just what was that like uh, teaching classes and you go into conferences and stuff? Yeah, it's really great. Uh, Teaching science fiction at Georgia Tech is an amazing place to do that, for one thing. Um, We've been doing science fiction studies at Georgia Tech since the early 1970s, and we were actually one of the first universities to give college credit for taking science fiction classes. So by the time I got there in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, we had uh, already a 30-year tradition established of bringing in science fiction people and 
Uh, actually, when my predecessor retired, he had donated 8,000 science fiction items to the library. So I inherited a whole collection to curate. And that's been wonderful. Today, we're one of the top 20 research collections in the world. We have people come from, you know, as close as the university down the street to as far away as Portugal who come and work with us. And the really wonderful thing, too, of course, is I'm looking at stories about science and technology, but I actually get to work with people who are creating science and technology on the ground. And it's really fun to talk with scientists about what they're doing compared to how it's getting represented in culture. And in fact, you know, that's great at Georgia Tech. People will come up to me from engineering and they'll say, oh, wow, you're the science fiction person. I totally understand what you're doing here and why you're here. But it's those Shakespeare people. What What's up with them anyway? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. Well, you know, I interviewed... um an author about a book called The Brothers Vonnegut. And it was all about how Kurt Vonnegut worked with his brother, Bernard, um, yeah. who was an engineer. And so, you know, there was the, a very tight loop between the engineering and the science fiction that he was writing. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely super common, um, especially in the 40s and 50s, when you had editors like John W. Campbell, who had who was trained as an engineer himself, who was really insistent that science fiction authors, if they didn't already have scientific expertise, uh, get in touch with the kinds of scientists whose work they wanted to write about. And so, you know, people would read the, um, was it the Bulletin of Atomic Physicists? They would start up correspondences with people at Los Alamos or, you know, wherever else uh, scientists were embedded at the time. And even today, you still see that. It's really interesting always to ask science fiction authors where they get their ideas about science. And if they're not trained in it, they do an impressive amount of reading and research. Hmm. So you mentioned you've, you've brought in some authors who are some of the, like a couple of the big names that you've brought in. Yeah, we've brought in, in the time that I've been here at Georgia Tech, we've brought in authors like Kathleen Angunin, who um, is the founder of Nanopunk, which is a spinoff of cyberpunk with nanotechnology. She does a lot of work thinking now about memory and consciousness and the plasticity of our bodies and our minds. And in fact, that was so successful, we ended up having a couple of our undergraduates went on to graduate school and uh, either become writers or scholars because they were so excited about working with her. And we were very fortunate we were able to bring Kathy on faculty as visiting professor for a few years, and now she's on our advisory board. And then we've also brought in... Um, we do a lot with black science fiction, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. We're in Atlanta. It's a big black city and it's a city with a lot of science fiction. So we bring in a lot of local authors. Um, so uh, the state of black science fiction collective, um, comes in frequently and does work with us. And then we've brought in, uh, national and international names like Minister Faust. That's obviously not his real name, but it's totally the best pen name ever, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, we're going to be bringing in, uh, Afrofuturist author and publisher Bill Campbell next month. And I'm really excited about that. I've known Bill for a long time. Um, but what's even cooler than being able to bring your friends in and have dinner with them is that Bill uh, runs Rosarium Publishing, which is one of the few uh, presses in the world dedicated to speculative fiction by people of color and, and from all over the world, not just the U.S. Yeah, it's so. true. That's really cool. I mean, one of the things that we've talked a lot about on the show is that people will go to study creative writing and the programs will not be friendly, you know, will not be helpful and sometimes are actively hostile to to writing fantasy and science fiction. Is Georgia Tech a good place to go for creative writing as well as for more scholarly um, studies? You know, it actually, it is a great place to come for creative writing, especially if you're interested in poetry. We have two endowed poetry chairs in my unit. Um, and we have about half a dozen creative writers on faculty, all of whom are published and in many different fields. And they're all have been so friendly and so generous to the cause of science fiction. So when Kathy's on campus, she does a lot of collaborating with our poets and our other creative writers. And when she's not on campus, we've got uh, creative writers who are like, send the science fiction students to me and we'll work with them. So that's been really great for our students. Yeah. And so then how did you get into writing books? So that's part of what I do as a scholar, and I'm particularly interested in the recovery of lost voices in science fiction and the discovery of new voices. And I started doing that work the first year I got to Georgia Tech when I was repositioning myself as a science fiction scholar. And in particular, I was putting together my first class, and I was thinking, you know, I just, I don't want to do the same, like, 10 guys you see all the time. I mean, they're great guys, and I wanted to teach some of their work. But I thought, surely there's something there that we can do, um, especially in early science fiction, other than, um, you know, Heinlein and Asimov and uh, maybe Arthur C. Clarke. So I started looking through anthologies, and I was so surprised to see 
how many women there were in science fiction um, before before women really came into the genre in the 1970s with feminist science fiction. You know, we're we're always told science fiction the genre was started by a woman by Mary Shelley with Frankenstein and. You know, after the 1970s, you see an influx of women and people of color and science fiction becomes quite diverse. And and we really enjoy that today. But I had been wondering where were all the women and people of color in between 1818 and 1970? And at least with women, it turned out they were there in the science fiction community all along. And I was really surprised. I kept uncovering these anthologies with all of these women who were clearly well known and celebrated in their day and that I had never heard of. And we had just lost them to history for a variety of reasons. And as I got really interested in figuring out why that was and recovering them. And so that led to doing some scholarly work where I would create histories of women in science fiction. And then I got into editing because my own editors were like, wow, these stories sound so great, but no one can get, get them anywhere. If you're not uh, an academic with access to a library, there's nowhere to find these old stories. And everyone was like, you should really bring these stories out. And I would always say, great, can we do this with your press? And they'd say, oh, our press doesn't do that, but someone will do it. And it did turn out, in fact, there are a number of presses that were really excited about this. And so um, my last couple books have been edited anthologies of women's science fiction, and, and that's been really cool to recover that. And so you said that about 15% of the writers during the, the pulp era, were science mm-hmm. fiction writers, were, were women? Yeah. And that number, you know, it's very flexible, just as the numbers are flexible today. It really depends on how you define science fiction. If you define it narrowly, it was definitely, you know, about 15% women. If you want to go really broad and include the fantasy magazines, the numbers go up because women historically have been associated with fantastic fiction um, and and fantasy writing. So so you'll get more there. But I think 15% is is a good number if you're looking at the, at the really hardcore science fiction magazines. Yeah. And you said, I mean, uh, I was certainly aware of women writing under male pseudonyms, yeah. uh, but you say there are actually more men writing under female pseudonyms? I'd say the numbers are about the same. So I think one thing that is really um, tricky is that we do know there are a few really well-known cases of women writing under male pseudonyms. And it's those two or three stories have somehow come to stand in for all the women in science fiction. And when I went to look at this, what I found is most women didn't publish under male pseudonyms. First of all, well, I found two things. First of all, everyone published under pseudonyms because you made so little money writing science fiction. If you were lucky, you made a half penny on the word. And and that was if you were publishing with a really great magazine. So people had to do a lot of writing to support themselves and their families. And you didn't want to flood the market. So of course you used pen names. And it is true, like I said, that there were women who used male pen names, um, but there were also women who used a lot of female pen names. And and indeed, what we found out with my last book, The Future is Female, is that there were men, about as many men using women's pen names as there were women using male male names. Um, they seem to do it for slightly different reasons. Men use tend to use women's pen names when they're writing about you know, quote unquote, feminine subjects like the home or if they had a female protagonist um, and maybe they thought that that would go down easier with readers. But if nothing else, it did give them permission to write a different kind of story. Now, you said that a lot of these female authors have been lost to history for a variety of reasons. What were just yeah. a couple of those reasons? The, really, the two main, the main reasons are that editors just kept writing them out of history. So uh, what happened was in the early science fiction community, the, the early science fiction community was really quite open to women. And, and there were a number of women who came into the genre very early and who really made names for themselves, especially in magazines that were edited by Hugo Gernsback. So amazing stories and uh, wonder stories. And uh, they, they were really these were women who were just sort of accepted parts of the community. Uh, the very first woman who was published in the science fiction magazines, Hugo Gernsback, was like, hmm, I don't know, women in this genre, how unusual. But the reality is he had been hiring women for his other magazines for years. So you got to think that was a little bit of posturing to make science fiction look so cool. Like, yeah, we're such an awesome genre that even housewives want to be part of it. So I feel like there's a little little bit of um, a dog and pony show there, maybe. But um, so you have the women in, in, in the genre, and I just completely lost where we were going with this. Can you remind me? <laughs> how did they get erased from history? Yeah, yeah, how they got erased from history. So the women were there. They were well accepted. Um, they even often had their photos published in the early magazines with their stories. So there was really no doubt um, if, if someone was male or female, or at least passing as male or female. Uh, but what happened then was that 
So a lot of these women came in in the 20s and 30s, right on the end of first wave feminism and um, the, and the achievement of universal suffrage. So I think there was a lot of sort of excitement in the air about women being in new fields where they hadn't been before. But what happens is by the late 1930s and early 40s, all of America is feeling a backlash against feminism. And you really see that backlash uh, with certain new young male editors who come into the field in the late 30s and 40s, like John W. Campbell and uh, Groff Conklin. And for whatever reasons, they had it in their heads that women couldn't write, even though they had been publishing in the same pages with women. And um, when they sat down to make the first anthologies, as the, you know, the genre was finally old enough to tell its own history, they really consciously dropped women out of that history. And in fact, we know that happened because one woman uh, has, has gone on record talking about that, that she had been invited to be included in one of the first science fiction anthologies. And when the editors found out she was a woman, which they should have known from the first place because her picture was next to all her stories, but somehow they didn't see that. And when they found out, suddenly within a week, she had been dropped from the anthology. And, you know, it's hard not to see exactly what that's about. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so, so so one of your earlier books, it was called Galactic Suburbia. Could you talk about what that means? Yeah. So Galactic Suburbia is a phrase that actually was coined by feminist science fiction author Joanna Russ. And it was a way to talk about stories that did a really great job imagining wild new scientific and technological futures, but then completely failing to figure out how new sciences and technologies might change society. So you'll have these futures where we've colonized the universe and we have all kinds of like new elements and, you know, amazing superstructures, but Everyone still lives in heterosexual families with 2.3 children in suburbs that look a lot like 1950s suburbs and uh, sex and gender relations haven't changed. And maybe you have a dog and maybe you have an alien, but as a pet, but otherwise it all looks very much like the world does, you know, in, in our own time. And Russ was like, that's so bizarre because every time science and technology changes, society changes. So for her, that was a critique to talk about stories set in galactic suburbia. She saw this as a as a failure of imagination, that you can only imagine scientific change, but not social change. And I think that's interesting. And, and she is right that to a certain extent, galactic suburbia is the setting for a lot of science fiction and particularly a lot of women's science fiction prior to the 1970s. But I think that's only half the story. When you sit down and look at it, those stories, yeah, they're set in galactic suburbia, but there's a really interesting uh, rhetorical strategy happening there. And what you find is that women and some male authors were really drawing very much on the rhetoric of the home and the family from the 1950s and then sort of spinning that out and using it as a, a sort of magnifying lens through which to explore what was going on in science and society and, and often to, to criticize the way that we failed to live up to our own scientific and social dreams. I mean, one example of that galactic suburbia idea that kind of jumped out at me from the future is female is in the Lee Brackett story. You have these aliens from outer yeah. space from a super advanced civilization, yeah. and the husband will get out of the car and open the door for his wife. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then, of course, when his wife is attacked, right, by human men, he's powerless to stop it, but then eventually has to go and, and take revenge with, with his advanced super technologies, too, of course. But yeah. yeah, and again, it's an amazing story because it makes sense in some ways to use that very traditional relation, gender relationship, because the story is a critique of race relations, right? It's about um, the fear of the racial other and the kind of violence that that people will do to each other to preserve their own sense of self-worth. So I think in some ways, Brackett was really smart. She wanted to say something. She wanted to make a really sharp critique of race relations in America in the 1950s at a moment when that was a real, you know, um, issue for Americans. And I think that by telling that story through a very familiar gendered framework, it's easier to deal with the more radical parts of it, which are the the, the critique of race relations and the critique of uh, American behavior, essentially. Well, right. And so in this story, there's this, this alien couple comes to a small town and are, are harassed by the locals. Right. And it's very, I mean, it's not at all, um, you know, 
disguise that this is a, an analog for a black couple coming to oh. a small town. Oh, not at all. In fact, one of the characters calls them green Negroes. So uh, in case you missed what was going on, uh, Brackett really does sort of lay it out for you. What's interesting is that even though she's so pointed about it, it doesn't lose any of the effectiveness. When I talk to people, this is often one of their favorite stories in the anthology. They're like, wow, that's a hard hitting one. Yeah, it was certainly one of my favorite stories in the anthology. Yeah. So would she not have been able to write uh, about a, a realistic story about the racial tensions of the time? or, or... Oh, it would have been difficult, if not in, in completely impossible. You actually find quite a few white authors writing what I would call civil rights science fiction in the 1950s. But it's always either told from the perspective of a white person sort of witnessing racial discrimination or from the or it's told from the perspective of um, an alien one race alien race persecuting a different alien race, right? Or humans I, persecuting aliens. Yeah. I guess while we're on the subject, I'll just mention there's another story from the book Mr. Sacrison Tall, which oh, yeah. also engages with um, sort of racial issues very directly. Yeah. Yeah, I actually I love that story. Uh, a lot of people say that Mildred Klingerman's writing very much inspired the style of Twilight Zone. And I think you can really oh, see yeah, it in that yeah. story. That story would make a perfect Twilight Zone story. Uh, but it's in a great example of exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's a really smart story about race relations in the South. And and uh, I think Klingerman lived down in the American South around that time. So she she knew of what she was writing. And it feels very authentic to me, as someone who currently lives in the United States South, um, although, you know, obviously 50, 60 years later. But again, it's a story that's told uh, by one white woman who's talking to another white woman uh, who's telling her story about her romance with a white man. So who happens to be uh, an integrationist. So the race relations issues get really removed and sort of maybe not buried, but folded in under this story about a lost love, right? And so again, I think the rate, the critique becomes easier to swallow because we all recognize the story of someone driven um, mad, essentially, by by losing their loved ones. Right. Well, so let's back up a little bit and talk about yeah. The Future is Female. Sure. Um, this is uh, published by the Library of America, which yeah. my impression is that this is a, a very prestigious sort of canon-forming um, line of books. Is that is that Would you say that's a correct... Impression. Absolutely. Yes. The Library of America is a nonprofit organization that is designed to preserve and celebrate America's literary heritage. And the way I often explain it to people is the, the books that you read in your English lit classes in high school and college are pretty much determined by the Library of America. So absolutely, if they say it's it's a literature, then then we all accept that it's literature. And I think that it's really exciting that in the last few years, They've decided to expand their mandate. Historically, the Library of America looked at very traditional mainstream literature by great authors like Nathaniel Hawthorne or Flannery O'Connor. And they often really, and they often focused on historic literature rather than contemporary literature. And one of the things they've wanted to do is to widen their mandate and to think about uh, popular variations of literature and and how it is that detective fiction and science fiction and fantasy and weird fiction uh, are all part of the American literary tradition. So they had hired on three science fiction editors, and I got to come on as one of those. And that's been really exciting to sort of handle uh, women's science fiction for them. Right. I mean, I can remember when I first got into the field that there was it was sort of a, a sore subject that the the Library of America didn't have any science fiction writers in their lineup. And I remember um, Lovecraft being the first one. Yes. And then Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Um, is that am I accurate in I that? I think that that sounds about right. And then, of course, now there's a whole there's uh, the whole all bigger anthologies. I think there's an anthology of American fantasy. Um, and there are a couple different science fiction anthologies, uh, the greatest hits of the 50s, the greatest hits of the 60s. So we're expanding out. I think that the Library of America is still focusing primarily on historical authors rather than contemporary authors. The, the big exception there has been Ursula Le Guin, who definitely bridged the past, present, and future. Um, and so it's, it's, I'm, I'm pleased to see that we're really recovering that history. And, and it was so ideal when they called and they said, do you think there's anything to the history of women's science fiction? And I had just finished <laughs> two books on it. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure we could put a book together on that. So, and, and it's been wonderful. They've been so supportive and so open to learning about literature other than the kinds of literature they usually look at. And as it turned out, everyone who worked at Library of America is a huge science fiction fan. So, to, everyone got on board with reading stories and giving me feedback. It was it was both wonderful and terrifying. 
So, so having just done the earlier book, which was called mm-hmm. Sisters of Tomorrow, I think, yes. um, was that, was, is this pretty similar to that or, or did you have a, a different approach that you took to the uh, future's female? Yeah, they, they actually, they're, they're both broadly the same in that they are recoveries of women in science fiction before the advent of feminist science fiction. So, you know, all, all of the women who helped build the genre between 1818 and 1970, but they differ in a couple key ways. So the first way in which they differ is that first book, Sisters of Tomorrow, is much more of a deep dive into a shorter time period. And I'm just looking there at the formative years of science fiction as a popular commercial genre. So the 1920s to the early 1940s. Um, and whereas The Future is Female, we've got a broader look and we're looking from the beginning of uh, the genre in the 1920s all the way up to the advent of feminist science fiction in the 1970s. Then the other differences between the two books is that the first book, Sisters of Tomorrow, looks at women as they worked in the science fiction community across different kinds of productions. So a chapter on authors, of course, but then a chapter on artists and a chapter on women as science fiction poets and a chapter on women as editors and even a chapter on women as science journalists, which was a really fun one to write because women were so at the lead of science journalism everywhere, and then very much um, brought that to science fiction as well. So it was cool to look at all the different ways that women have participated in the genre and helped to build the genre. Uh, whereas in The Future is Female, we got to do a deep dive just into literary science fiction and into stories rather than uh, poems or novellas. So we really focused on the short story there, which honestly, I feel like the short story is the perfect form for both American literature in general and science fiction in particular. So so that was really fun just to look at those kind of stories. One thing that kind of jumped out at me is that um, between 1952 and 1963 in The Futures Female, almost every story was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Was that just they were publishing all the best stories or were they particularly receptive to women authors? Or? Both of, I'd say both of those things. So, uh, you know, there were three big – there were a lot of science fiction magazines in the 1950s. I think there were – not 57, 47 uh, at, at the peak of the magazine boom in the mid-1950s. But there were really three magazines that were the tastemakers – um, so Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, which was considered the most literary of the science fiction magazines and did indeed have a reputation for um, boosting and supporting the careers of female authors. The other two magazines were um, Astounding Science Fiction, which was edited by John W. Campbell. And as I had mentioned earlier when we were chatting, Campbell was skeptical about women's ability to write science fiction. Um Judith Merrill has a wonderful story about that. Uh, she was at a con with him and they were drunk. And this was before she had become an author. And he was going on and on about how women can't write science fiction. And she said, well, I bet I could write a science fiction story you'd buy. And he said, I don't think that's going to happen. And she said, I bet I could write a story you'll buy and you'll beg me for more. And he said, never going to happen. So they put down, I don't know, $10 on it or something. And she wrote um, one of the stories that we have in the future is female, um, which is that only a mother wonderful, wonderful story uh, that really started the subgenre of science fiction we now call housewife heroine science fiction. And Campbell loved the story. He bought it from her. He was like, oh my gosh, you were right. I was wrong. This is an amazing story. I want more from you. So she sent him her next story, which was a space colonization story, good standard science fiction fair. And he rejected it because he said, well, there's no mothers in it. I don't really want this from you. You should be writing more about mothers. So it almost became a trap with with Campbell. Either women couldn't write science fiction or they could, but they could only write about women as housewife heroines. So, you know, a few women published with uh, at, with with Campbell in Astounding, but but not as many as went to um, Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction or even Galaxy, which was the third magazine and was well known for social satire. And one thing I hope we really captured in the future is female is that that point that women wrote a lot of social satire. They had a lot to say about mid-century cultural arrangements, and most of it wasn't that pleasant. Uh, Well, right. I mean, there's this very satirical story that was one of my favorites called The Tunnel Ahead. Oh, gosh, yes. That's an amazing story. So I hear that that's taught in some elementary schools to children, which I I know that makes me laugh. But I've talked to a lot of people who said they read that story when they were little in in school. Um, And I know that it's also been made into a movie by a Norwegian director, the same guy who did Troll Hunter, which is an amazing, amazing uh, 
mockumentary if you've never seen it. So yeah, it's it's a movie that definitely or a story that that appeals to people. It's very chilling. And reading, I mean, I think it was published in 1961, and there were some pretty yeah. accurate predictions in it. Um, I was really struck by they have in the car they have TV screens built into the backs of the the, the headrests of the seats. Yes, um, to keep children under control. And as someone who owns a child now, <laughs> I can tell you those TVs in the car they're a great thing. Yeah, it, it, they do that, um, right? Um, the sort of constant trying to get the kids to calm down and behave and be quiet. It also felt kind of well. That's probably always what people do with their kids, actually. Well, well but also this just sort of. Um, casual medication of children. Um, yes, the casual medication of everyone really in that family, right? And and also the way that the the father, the narrator is sort of both simultaneous hope and fear that something bad will happen to them in the tunnel because their world is so boring and this is the only excitement they have is this this kind of horrible drama. Right. Yeah. And so, so I, I had never, I hadn't heard of Alice Glazer before, and I also hadn't. Most of the stories that I, you know, that were my favorites, I was pretty familiar with the names of the authors. But that one and um, Catherine McLean, I wasn't familiar uh, with at all, and I thought that story was terrific. Contagion. Oh, Contagion! Yeah, Catherine McLean's a wonderful author. I, I enjoy teaching her. She's, she actually had quite a bit. She was a lab technician, had a lot of scientific training, and I think it really comes out in her stories, and you can you can see that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a very well done hard science fiction story, and yes. it, it it's about um, you know colonists on an alien planet, and it deals with the issue of chirality of um, you know the or, uh, organic molecules being reversed, and so we can't right. digest the food. And and I almost never see that dealt with in any science fiction, let alone a story from the fifties or early sixties. I I know the only other person I've ever heard talk about that is uh, my brother in law who wrote his PhD thesis on chirality. Oh, wow. But it's true; it's it's unusual to hear this. But again, I think that she was working as um, a lab technician, a food technician, in fact, so would have had um, some familiarity with thinking about issues of food and digestion. So um, that that seems to have really been uh, the impetus for that story. Yeah, no, it, it was really good. Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, Almost every story in this is, is fits fairly neatly into the label of science fiction. Yes. Uh, except I would say the, there are two, uh, the C.L. Moore story and the Joanna Russ story, um, yeah. are more sword and sorcery flavored. Um, right. What was that decision process like to include those stories in the book? Yeah. Well, we wanted to include stories that mapped not just, uh, the critics, like, uh, cultural criticism of, first of all, we wanted great stories that would be enjoyable to read, regardless of what the content was. That was, you know, first and foremost, uh, really big ideas and, and great writing. Uh, secondarily, we did mostly want to try to stay very firmly within the realm of science fiction, but we also wanted to demonstrate how uh, science fiction writers have played with the idea, not just of cultural critique, but of celebration, and, and especially the idea of the celebration of the female hero, or what sometimes is called the shiro. And um, <laughs> I love that, I know. And C.L. Moore, she invented the first female heroine in, in sword and sorcery fantasy. And that struck us as so important that we needed to include it, especially since it was easy to justify because it's such a great story. And in theory, she's going to get something like a technology from this strange god. It's a very sort of Lovecraftian moment where, you know, you're not really sure if the god is a god or an alien. So we thought, well, it's close enough to science hmm. fiction. It's right on that line. And then I, I love that Joanna Russ story, The Barbarian. It's from um, her sequence, the Alex sequence. And um, what's great is the sequence starts as a fantasy sequence that, that that character is from a very recognizably fantasy world. But over the course of the stories, she's eventually um, picked up by time travelers from the future, and she actually ends up becoming the head of the temporal authority in the future. So the story we include, The Barbarian, is sort of the hinge point between um, where that character goes from being a fantasy heroine to a science fiction heroine, because uh, she has to fight a magician, but the magician is really, it turns out, um, uh, just a man who has some super technologies that even he doesn't understand. And, you know, it turns out that our, our heroine, the su supposed barbarian, is a lot more scientific and rational in her thought. And so, again, it was easy to think about including that because we're like, well, you know, it's a fantasy story, but Alex, she really embraces the ideals of science fiction. She's rational. She's clever. She's solution oriented. And she's such an amazing update to C.L. Moore's heroine. They're both such wonderful sheroes. But um, C.L. Moore says she always used to write her uh, female characters to look like what she wished she looked like. So Jarrell is like a thousand feet tall and has perfectly curled flowing red hair. And, you know, she's young and she's strong and she's 
cool. Um, she's actually kind of stubborn and stupid too, which is also charming in its own way. And what I love is Alex is such an interesting updating. It's so clearly a, a 1970s feminist response to that earlier heroine, right? Because Alex, she's nothing like uh, Jarrell. Ultimately, she's middle-aged. She's getting thick through the middle. She's not really thrilled about how she looks, but she really likes her life. She's got this husband. She's really happy being a criminal. Um even though it turns out she has morals that are more than just those of a criminal. And we thought, I just love that updating. I love the idea that that a, a dumpy middle-aged woman can be a hero too. And that we don't all have to be beautiful supermodels in like brass brassiers or anything like that. Now, have you read pretty much every story from this period? or And if not, how did you like seek I, out these stories? I, I, I think I have read pretty much every story from this period. Absolutely. So the way we put together The Future is Female is the Library of America, when they approached me about the book, they had already put together a tentative list of authors and stories that they were interested in. Um, and so I went through that and I, I used that combined with the research I had done on my own for my two previous books. And I have a, a wonderful database. It's called the Locus Database um, of Science Fiction and Fantasy. And I was using the magazine index, which goes from the 1880s to the 2000s. And so we were able to use that. So if the Library of America was interested in a specific author, we could use the database to pull every story by that author and look at them all to make sure we like them. And we did look at easily at least a thousand stories and, and maybe more. Wow. Yeah. It was fun. I, 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 I'm getting paid to read stuff I love. I, I can hardly complain about that. Hmm. I also got paid to read some stuff I didn't love. I have to say <laughs> that, too. Well, so I wanted to mention in um, the story I mentioned, um, All the Colors of the Rainbow, the yeah. Lee Brackett story, that yeah. there's a federation. I mentioned there's these advanced aliens on Earth, and they're kind of working to incorporate Earth into this galactic federation where they're going to yeah. make them more enlightened. And, and it reminds you a lot of the Star Trek Federation. Do you know if there was any uh, direct influence there? Um, I, I don't know if there was. That's a really good point. But it certainly is pretty common to see that idea by the 1950s in science fiction, the idea that eventually we would have a group of nations working together to build a better future, a group of not, sorry, nations, but uh, different planets. And, and I think that's an easy extrapolation after World War II. As, as the nations of Earth try to work together to recover from that war and start building out the future that would become our present. So I, I think it's no surprise that we see this in both Lee Brackett and in Gene Roddenberry. It was just very much in the air. Mm -hmm. How about um, you say that uh, a lot of people think that the story in hiding influenced the X-Men? Do you yeah. know how did that like how what's the evidence of that or how that um, you know, it's it's largely anecdotal, but the the way that the stories uh, follow each other so similar similarly, and the in hiding stories were so popular, and there was so much back and forth between authors in the science fiction and comic book community that it's it's difficult not to find those kinds of connections. I don't think anyone's ever come out and said, "Oh yes," anyone who worked on the original X Men said, "Oh, we were reading Wilmar Sharas and we totally stole this from her." <laughs> yeah, that they <laughs> but, wouldn't really. No, right? Exactly, but. You know, we talk about the science fiction megatext and the idea that a good science fiction reader is going to be familiar with lots and lots of different science fiction stories. And they're all loosely connected either by ideas or by style. And it, it, it would not be any surprise to me. And it, it's just so hard not to feel the echoes of this, that the in hiding stories, right, are about a psychologist who, under, who uncovers these uh, mutant geniuses who have been forged by nuclear war, essentially. And geez, it's a really similar story to the X-Men. And, um, you know, both are obviously maybe responding to a different factor, which is the issue of racism in America. I know that the uh, creators of the X-Men, they've always been very honest about that, that they saw this as their contribution to the civil rights movement. And of course, most uh, super genius stories in science fiction are what we sometimes call slam stories. They are. They're absolutely about the per persecution of a gifted minority. Um, now, I do think originally in the science fiction community, those kind of stories weren't about race relations. I think it was about science fiction fans feeling that they were indeed special and different and persecuted by the rest of the world. But it very quickly and very easily becomes a really useful and portable metaphor for talking about other kinds of tensions between in-groups and out-groups. Right. And now, I mean, speaking of influence, too, I mean, there's this James Tiptree Jr. story, The Last Flight of Dr. Ain, 
which is yeah. about a a scientist who loves animals who spreads a, a pathogen that's going to wipe out humanity. Yeah. Uh, in a way that it, it's very hard to believe didn't influence 12 Monkeys. Um, do you know anything about that? Oh, um, you know, I don't know if it did or not. I mean, I've always, you know, heard that 12 Monkeys was influenced by La Jetée. And they're similar stories in that they're both, you know, stories about ecologically ruined worlds. And, and especially La Jetée and 12 Monkeys are about using time travel to send someone around to try to fix that. Um, but I, I wouldn't be, again, surprised to find out that there was indeed something like that going on. You see a number of stories coming out of science fiction in the 60s and 70s that are really uh, worried about either our ability to kill off the Earth or our ability to kill ourselves off, if nothing else. Yeah, I just did a quick Google search to see if I could come up with anything. All I could find is uh, Elizabeth Hand, who I, I believe mm-hmm. wrote the novelization to Twelve Monkeys, but but she had said somewhere that um you know that that Terry Gilliam had taken this from James Tiptree for Twelve oh, Monkeys. Oh no, kidding! I, I wouldn't um, be surprised. That it, makes a lot of sense, actually. It wasn't clear from whether that whether she had specific information about it or whether she was just making a reasonable inference but that that was the that was as much as i could find on that oh that's cool well again i'm just going to say science fiction megatext everyone hears echoes of each other in their stories and makes that does that on purpose Mm. yeah Uh, i was also just curious about this so you say in your intro um farnsworth wright is reported to have closed his office for the day in celebration when he received cl moore's now famous story chamblow yes just curious if there's any more details about that we don't know anything about that. We've always heard this story. Um, Farnsworth Wright himself supposedly told it, and it's become, you know, a bit of a, a maybe apocryphal story actually within the community. There's there's no evidence that that really happened, but it is certainly true that that Chamblot is it it marked a real departure in weird storytelling. It was very sophisticated and and very literary uh, c- compared to a lot of what had been going on in weird tales before then, and a uh, very different response to the fear of the unknown than say Lovecraft. And um, it, it may or may not be true, but it's such a good story. And Chamblot itself is such a great story and has been anthologized so many times. It, it's, I want to believe it. Hmm. I do want to believe it. Yeah. What, when you say it's a different reaction to the unknown than Lovecraft, what do you mean by that? Right. Well, it, it, it isn't, it isn't. In Lovecraft, right, there's always like our narrators are shattered when they realize that humans are not the center of the universe and that we're not the sort of ultra mega in control engineers of our own destiny, but then instead we've been engineered by other people that there's other things out there, other forces bigger and more powerful than humanity. And for Lovecraft, you know, that's a point that always just drives his, his narrators insane. Right. Um, so like, uh, is it in the mountains of madness where we find out we're basically the trash that was left by traveling aliens when they hit earth and it just drives everyone insane. And you see that a little bit in the more story, right? Like the whole idea that there's these things out there, the shamblows that, at least our narrator doesn't know what they are. And even uh, the Martians and the Venusians who seem to know a little bit about them don't have a lot of information. And while like a Lovecraft character, they're all really afraid of the Shamblo. I think what's interesting is the story explores the, the pull of the other and the pull of these strange things. It doesn't just drive our narrator mad, except with desire. He wants more. He wants to be part of it. And he's got real conflicted feelings about this, but it's it's interesting because it's so much more nuanced than Lovecraft, where just when you find out there are other things in control, you're just like, oh, this is terrible. I have to go kill myself now or something. <laughs> you know, right? And here, you know, um, the narrator's like, well, I'll try to stay away from the shamblows, but I don't know if that's really going to happen. And I just think that's so cool, the way she explores um, our desire for things that are bad for us, essentially. Right. So, I mean, you mentioned that you've been going to conferences and conventions and things. Mm-hmm. Did, have you interacted with any of the authors that you included in The Future's Female? Uh, yeah, I have had a chance to do that. That has been really wonderful. Um, obviously, a lot of our authors are no longer with us, but I have met in the past both Judith Merrill and um, Ursula K. Le Guin. In fact, I had breakfast with them once. And that was really interesting and fun. And I learned a lot about how very different their personalities were. This was uh, when I was working at Wiscon in the 90s, and I got to have 
I had got to have breakfast with, with, um, Blue Gwynn and, uh, and some other people. And it was all, it was great. It was a very nice breakfast. It was very calm. It was very dignified. We were having a nice intellectual conversation, drinking our orange juice. And then Judy Merrill came rolling in and, and she was in a wheelchair then, but she's in her wheelchair. And she had like a glass of champagne in one hand and a cigarette in the other and an oxygen <laughs> tank strapped to her chair. And, and she just rolled in and she was just a party on wheels, literally, and a big, loud personality and just really took over the room and started telling like amazing stories about her youth. And uh, it, it I, I felt a little bad for Ursula Le Guin. She got kind of pushed to the corner there, but I got to say Judith Merrill was, was really entertaining. So um, I'm really excited that I got to meet both of them. And then I had the good fortune of working with Le Guin again um, on Sisters of Tomorrow when we got her to, we asked her to blurb the book, which she did. And that was wonderful, but she ended up getting really involved in the book and she would be like, well, I was thinking about these claims you guys made and I went and did some research and here's what I remember. And here's this letter I have. And it was really cool. I was like, I'm like, wow, Ursula Le Guin's editing my book for me. Hmm. Um, it was both really cool and really terrifying. <laughs> There's but, a, a documentary about Le Guin that's in the works. I don't know if you followed that at all. Oh, no, I don't know anything about that. What's going on with that? Uh, I, there's a trailer for it. I, I don't know if I think it's been shown at festivals and stuff. I don't know if there's a release date for it, but uh, it looks pretty cool. I mean, I think this the the filmmaker, you know, spent a lot of time with Le Guin and, and filmed a lot of um, you know footage of her. Uh, I think that's amazing. She was such a thoughtful and smart woman. So I'm really glad that other people will get the opportunity to hear her doing her thing. I mean, it's, it's always wonderful to read Le Guin, but it was really special to get to speak with her, um, you know, and, and hear her talk. And so obviously that's going to be a fantastic opportunity for people to see um, when that documentary comes out. Yeah. There's also, I understand a biography of Judith Merrill, I think written by her daughter. Um, yes, yes, yes. I've read that. That's, it's a marvelous biography. It's really wonderful. Yeah. It yeah. is called better to have loved. And it is a, a really, all of the early science fiction fans, Judith Merrill was part of a group called the Futurians, who uh, were a sort of important fan group in the 30s and 40s, and went on to all become important authors and editors, included Isaac Asimov, Donald Wolheim, Frederick Pohl, Virginia Kidd. So um, a lot of the people really ended up shaping things. And all of the male Futurians had written biographies, and none of the females had. So it was really cool when Judith Merrill's came out. It gives you a sort of different perspective um, than what you get in all the male biographies. She tells a lot more. She has a lot more gossip about people's relationships. <laughs> it's really pretty cool because they led such crazy lives. They were real bohemians. It was really fun to see what sort of spicy lives they had. Hmm. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned that um, people have this perception that women really came into science fiction with the new wave feminists. Right. right. Um, so, so from your perspective, would you say that there's a point where feminism really kicks off, or was was science fiction? Were there always was there always um, feminist science fiction throughout the 20th century? I think there's always been feminist science fiction, but it was a much more minor theme uh, than it was than it became in the 1970s, and certainly than it is now. And it's important to note, like I like I noted in our, these books, at least 15% of the science fiction community was women uh, producers. The readers, they think, it, um, reading polls suggest that 40 to 50% of the readers were women. So there were always a lot of women in the genre. But we know that when, with the advent of a very self-consciously defined, defined feminist science fiction in the 70s, those numbers of women in science fiction doubled, and, and they still hold today at somewhere between about 35 to 45%. So that definitely uh, made a difference. And I think when there's a lot of women saying, hey, we're a group and we work together, it probably feels easier to join that community. Um, whereas earlier feminists in science fiction, there was no group of women in touch with each other, talking together about feminist issues, responding to them. Instead, what you see are individual authors who um, often were doing uh, feminist and other kinds of progressive political work who would do one-off stories where they would explore feminism or they would do the kind of thing everyone did in the community where they would take a storytelling tradition that had already been established and start playing with it and turning it on their heads and they would do that from a feminist perspective. But again, it wasn't like there were a whole group of women or people saying, calling these women a group or a movement. So for instance, if you look at the early stories in um, The Future is Female, The Conquest of Gola is and Space Episode are, are really pretty overtly feminist science fiction stories. Um, the Conquest of Gola is actually the first um, published science fiction story that was told from a female perspective. And then, of course, Space Episode is all about 
what you got to do when the men around you can't can't think control of things right so um but those again they were one-off stories they caused a lot of sound and fury within um the science fiction community uh, the authors thought that was hilarious and great but but it wasn't like leslie stone was calling leslie perry and they were going out for drinks and plotting like the feminist takeover of the science fiction community and no one saw these women as a group they they there were women in science fiction and and they were celebrated so stone for instance and Harris were both celebrated as, as two of the premier writers in the early science fiction community. But no one said, oh, look at all those women together. It's a group of women writers. You begin to see that in the 50s with the rise of housewife heroine fiction. So stories like the only, that only a mother um, or the gardener that are told from the perspective of women as wives and mothers. And it's true. After Merrill wrote that only a mother, a lot of women start writing those kinds of stories and using the housewife heroine character to talk about contemporary social issues. And that's the moment when suddenly within the science fiction community, people are saying, hey, women seem to have something going on here as a unique and distinct group. That's the moment that people start talking about a women's science fiction or housewife heroine science fiction, sometimes called heartthrob and diaper science fiction, too. That and uncharitably, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, but people were standing up and noting that there was indeed a, a thing going on um, and that women seemed to be at the front of it. I think Anthony Boucher celebrated the, these as story, sensitive stories told from a housewife's point of view. And uh, was very, really excited about them. And in fact, by the late 50s, Galaxy Magazine had like an all-sex issue and an all-housewife heroine issue. So it did start to get popular. And then that, of course, paves the way for the feminists to come in. And they say, well, it's really awesome. Women have been doing these other things in science fiction. Great work with character development. Great social critique. But they identify these problems and don't think of solutions. And we as the feminists, we're going to tell stories that imagine solutions. Well, so like there's a story, um, When I Was Miss Dow. Where yeah, that's one of my favorites. There's a protoplasmic alien and yes. in, when interacting with humans, they, they sort of assume human bodies and so become yes. either male or female, you know, right. when they had no gender to start with. And right. it sort of prefigures um, Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness and stuff like that. Is, is that kind of where um, science fictional exploration of gender sort of kicks off or did it start earlier than that? It really, really takes off in the 1960s. You you see it a little bit in some of the earlier stories. Uh, again, I think The Conquest of Gola is the best example of that because um, it's a story, right, where human men from Earth come to take over the matriarchy of Mars, of Venus, and it turns out they, they can't do it because the women of Venus have these incredible mental technologies and just kick their butts around the galaxy and back to Earth. And I think that story is interesting because the women in that story, they're so funny, they're so vain, and they're so horrible. And that even though they're the heroes, like you just, you just don't want to identify with them. But they're less bad than the men. It's and, and what I like about that story is it suggests that women can be just as rotten as men. And I think that that's kind of cool. And in an era when people treated women as like angels in the home or feisty feminist, like saviors of the world, I don't know, it's kind of refreshing to see these really sort of self-absorbed but kick-ass women. Um, so you still, so you'll see bits of that here and there, but it really absolutely takes off. Yeah. In the 1960s, again, with the revival of feminism. And, and I think as people begin to think about the ways sex and gender can be separated from each other, right? This is the moment of, um, the first, um, sexual reassignment surgeries and the beginning of birth control. And all of a sudden, you know, we're thinking there might be ways to express masculinity and femininity that aren't tied to our bodies. And, you know, Sonia Dorman's story is all about that. Um, absolutely. Left Hand of Darkness is still about bodies. It's just about different kinds of bodies, right? Um, but I love in Dorman's story, my favorite part, and, and this is different than in Left Hand of Darkness, right? In Left Hand of Darkness, the Gethenians are always either male or female, but they have some sort of sexual identity or orientation, whereas the shape-shifting aliens, they just don't do sex and gender until they take on human form. And I love that in the end, um, and then at first the alien kind of is into it and he's like, oh, I'm going to stay a woman. I'm kind of enjoying this relationship. But then after her lover dies, just the heartbreak. And she's like, I can't do this. I don't know how humans can handle love. I am not going to have a gender anymore. And I just thought that was so powerful. Yeah. I want to ask you before we run out of time, you um, recently um, were a sort of ex guest expert on James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction TV show. I was just yes. curious how you got involved with that and what that yeah. experience was like. 
Well, the experience was was it was a once in a lifetime experience for an academic scholar. Let <laughs> me tell you, it was cool. So um, the producers of the show called me um, in I guess 2016, and they they introduced themselves and they said, you know, we're working with AMC and we're gonna we're thinking about putting together a mini series on science fiction, and so we're talking with authors and scholars just to sort of get some ideas from you about where we might take the show and do you have a few minutes to talk? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And of course that few minutes turned into two and a half hours of talk and hmm. it was really fun. And, and the, the producers, they were so into it and they knew so much about science fiction. And one of them, she actually had an uncle who was a science fiction uh, producer in Hollywood. So it was really cool. Um, and then after that talk, they said, well, this was really great. And it turned out it was basically an interview to make sure I could talk like a human in small yeah. words, which not, you know, it's tough as academics, we're trained to talk in big words. But when you talk about science fiction, you know, you want to make sure everyone understands what you're talking about. So they invited me to go on the show and they invited me to go out to Los Angeles to film, I think, three or four episodes out of the six. And I went out and did that. And it was a real whirlwind, exciting experience. And then um, a couple months later, they said, wow, that was really great. You want to come to New York and do the other episodes? And I said, yeah, of course I will. And so I got a chance to do that. And and then the show went live. And let me just say my social media presence all of a sudden had a lot of new friends on social <laughs> media. It was cool. I'm really glad so many people have seen the show and, and enjoyed it and thought it was worthwhile. What did the set look like in real life? Because it looks pretty impressive on it the does, show. It does, doesn't it? You know what it looked like? It looked exactly like what you think like, an, like it looks like what a, like the backstage of a theater looks like. It's sort of dark and there's like a lot of makeshift curtains and a lot of tape on the floor, like telling you where to be. Um, but really, I mean, all of it happens. It's all movie magic. Uh, all of the lighting is from one camera that rotates around you while another camera shoots you um, still from a certain angle. So it it looks... I felt like I was backstage in in a like high school theater, but when it comes all together on the screen, it just looks utterly beautiful, and and it I, it looks like we were all in a spaceship. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, because my experience being interviewed for stuff like that—not that I've been interviewed for something big like that—but that is, you know, that they, they, they talk to you for three hours, and then the show comes out, and you're like, oh. They're going to use everything I said, and then it's like, I like aliens, and that's oh, you know, like, yeah, they used maybe a fraction of what we did. We shot for six hours the first time oh, and wow. eight hours the second time and with very few breaks it was i have a whole new respect for actors after this that is grueling work i have to say and the, the eighth time you have to say yes i really like star trek it's very hard to be enthusiastic about it or not to be overly enthusiastic because at that point the grins plastered on your face and you're like yes i love this show um, wait, wait, so, so they're telling you lines to repeat or something? Uh, well, sometimes like they're like, oh, we love what you just said. Can you re-say it three more times so we can catch it from different angles? Absolutely. Okay. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, they weren't telling you what to say at all. In fact, they were very sweet about that. They really wanted to make sure that they weren't putting words in anyone's mouth. They're like, you know, you say what you need to say and, you know, we'll edit it together into a coherent narrative. And I thought the narrative that they told, it was a you know, pretty, pretty good one. Um, all roads led to James Cameron, but it was James Cameron's story of science fiction. And he's done an incredible amount of science fiction films. So, you know, fair enough. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was, it was exciting and it was grueling. And I was surprised to see what they didn't, didn't use. We had shot so much amazing footage. I thought on um, feminism and monstrosity and everyone was so into it and not a single bit of it hit, uh, made it into the final cut. But I think a lot of the sort of they asked a lot of crazy questions, some of which were really pretty edgy. And, you know, I think it was just a matter of getting as much material as they could and seeing how it came together. Wait, what, what, what's an example of an edgy question that they asked? Oh, so I'm just thinking, thinking about, like, asking questions about um, how, again, I think the best one is the feminism and monstrosity one and talking about how monstrosity can be um, a metaphor for women's anger and how these films try to negotiate these kinds of things. And, you know, sort of getting diving a little deeper, maybe into the politics of these stories. Um, and we did that, too. We did, we dove deeply, sometimes maybe not edgy, but also kind of nerdy. So with the time travel episode, I, I had I, I have completely independently of all this, I had done all this research on time and like the formation of modern time systems. And everyone, the, the director was like, oh, this is cool. Keep talking, keep talking. And we dove really deep into like the International Time Conference of 1888 and its impact on H.G. Wells's, you know, the time machine. And again, none of that made it into the final cut. Um, again, probably just way too nerdy and didn't fit the overall narrative. 
So it was really exciting when Cameron's people asked me to come back and write one of the chapters for the companion book, because then I got to put in a lot of the stuff we had talked about that didn't make it into the movie itself. Do you think the effort might release uh, like um, bonus footage? or? I hope they do, because I feel like I know what got cut out of my interviews. And there were so many other smart scholars and actors who were interviewed for that. I would love to see what else they had to say. Um, in particular, I always forget his name, but the the younger star in Looper, um, he yeah, was right. He, yeah, I think so. Right. He had so much great stuff to say. I just wanted him to keep talking the entire time. And um, and then I thought Steven Spielberg, he had really cool personal stories to tell. I thought that was very sweet. And, uh, you know, I kept wanting to hear more of that. So are, are they totally done with that? Or do you think they ever might put together more episodes with the footage that, that they shot? I, I get the impression that it's done because AMC seems to have these series set, right? These They did the James Cameron story of science fiction, but they've also done one for horror fiction, I know. And I think there's one for weird fiction as well, or fantasy. So uh, my sense is that they, they're, they're done with this and that they'll move on. But, you know, who knows? If, if it makes enough money, um, I wouldn't be surprised if eventually we got uh, extended um, versions or director's cuts, essentially. Uh, you still can't it's still pretty, you can't buy the DVD yet of it. You can uh, get individual episodes like off iTunes or off Amazon, but I'm wondering if they're not waiting to put out some sort of master package, hmm. perhaps when the next Avatar movie comes out. <laughs> yeah, It'd be a good yeah. tie-in, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I heard you say that you are hoping to do a follow-up volume to The Futurist Female covering the you know more recent years? Yeah, would absolutely love to do that. Or, um, you know, I mean, that would certainly be wonderful. It would be I think an interesting challenge for the Library of America, because they generally don't work with living authors. And um, I, I, they, they, they're very excited about how well the current book is doing. Um, and it will be interesting to see if, if we go forward. Um, we have already, my students and I have begun doing some, some initial research um, on, on it. And even, because even if the Library of America doesn't put that together, you know, there might be someone else interested in, in doing a more contemporary anthology. But the other cool thing I would love to see a Library of America do is they also bring out omnibus volumes of no, of science fiction novels. And they've done the great science fiction novels of the 50s and the great science fiction novels of the 60s by which they largely mean the great men's science fiction novels. And I think there's only one woman collected in any of those anthologies. And I would love, I've done so much work with the short stories. I'd love to put together an omnibus with some of the really cool novels. Like if we could like in hiding was eventually brought out as a novel with all the short stories from that sequence. And I think it'd be fun for people to be able to read the whole thing, for instance. So if you did a follow-up volume, would it be up through 2018 or 2019 or would there be a cutoff? I think we try to go. Well, we would try to go all the way up to uh, the minute we went to press. Absolutely, yeah. there's so much exciting stuff that's been happening in science fiction over the last few years. Um, you know, big shifts in who wins awards, such big debates over what constitutes good science fiction. That I would really want to capture that excitement, especially as science fiction becomes increasingly global and increasingly diverse. Um, I, I, I want to try to capture that energy. It just seemed that would be a huge pro- I mean, you know, yeah. obviously the number of female science fiction writers is much higher than 15% yes. now. So you're talking yeah. a lot 30, of, 30, a lot of reading. Yeah. 30, 30, 30%, 45%. It, it is a lot of reading. Um, one thing that we were able to do in the first future, in the future as female is I was really fortunate. We were able to build, um, a research team of students who helped do, um, recover the stories and then would also go through and read and rank the stories with us. And I think that if we could work again with a team, both at Library of America and at Georgia Tech, it would make this a lot easier. But yeah. yes, it's a lot of stories to read. And, and, but I think it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, I definitely hope that that works out. And unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. So do you have any just uh, any final thoughts or any other projects you want to mention? Um, I'm I'm going to have a couple other projects coming out in the next year. I also do work in the recovery of uh, black science fiction, both African-American and discovery of African science fiction. So I'm really excited that this is something I've worked on for years and I've never uh, had a chance to publish book length work, but I'm going to have an anthology and a special journal issue coming out in the next year. And these are co-edited with my colleague and friend Isaiah Lavender III from Louisiana State University. And we're really excited to bring people the best in black speculative fiction. Do those have titles yet? Um, we're actually 
the, the, the book is currently titled Afrofuturism in Time and Space, although we may change it, but we're not sure to what yet. It's always up in the air until the last moment to see what happens. I'm going to rewriting the introduction now. I suspect I'll know what the title is in about three days. Yeah. Okay, well, too bad we don't have a time machine to jump three days in the future. I know, the- I know. But let's go with Afrofuturism in Time and Space. And then the special journal issue will be called Beyond Afrofuturism. And so we're looking at what's next in black speculative fiction, both in the United States and around the globe. All right, great. Yes, yeah, so everyone, check those out. And we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Lisa Yasik about her new book, The Future is Female. So Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. David, thank you so much for having me on. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Lisa Yazik for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Peter Larmour, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Carl Watson, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.